Welcome to Sound Bites in Modern Art. This is Dr. Jean Ouellette. I'm an art historian and an art critic who specializes in modern and contemporary art and theory, and I am the author of these podcasts. It may seem that in the mid-1950s, painting had reached its logical conclusion, backed itself into a corner. Indeed, in 1961, Clement Greenberg finally wrote down his final analysis of painting. Based on a radio discussion in 1960, his essay in 1961 titled Modernist Painting, explained the evolution of painting from Manet to abstraction as an inevitable Darwinian progression. The motivation for this progress in painting was to eliminate from painting all that was not inherent or intrinsic or definitional to painting. All that could be done better by another means of expression had to be purged. Theater could do better in three dimensions. Storytelling could do better in narration. Religion could do better in symbolism, and so on. By purging all the extrinsic elements and by paring painting down to its intrinsic elements, we are left at the end of painting. But it's only 1961. What happened next? Ironically and predictably, as Greenberg finished his essay, the forces of counter-reaction were gathering. This podcast will discuss the return of the repressed as figurative painting fights back. It is one of the ironies of art history that act the exact point in time, 1960, that Clement Greenberg was giving a radio address outlining his theory of modernist painting, that the forces that would end modernism were gathering. The logic of the progress of painting towards greater purity seemed to have come to fruition with the deductive paintings of Frank Stella and the reductive paintings of Ad Reinhardt. A young Princeton graduate, Stella was a transitional figure wedged between what his generation saw as the emotional excesses of abstract expressionism and a new group of painters who would later be termed minimalists. Perhaps less interested in theories about artistic evolution than in shoving the old men aside and with them the last remaining vestiges of European traditions, the young artists rethought the received wisdom of painting. The action painters of abstract expressionism had maintained the significance of the artist's mark and its authentic soul-bearing personality. Pollock, de Kooning, Klein, et al. had also retained elements of composition or arrangements of the formal elements. For painters like Stella, composition was to be eliminated because of its associations with finicky European artists like Mondrian. Such fastidious care over small bits and pieces smacked of femininity, an unpalatable idea to the macho men of the 50s. Perhaps unconsciously in keeping with the conformist corporate mentality imposed upon the males of that decade, the new generation strove to eliminate all traces of the individual's personality, physical touch, or decisions with regard to inventing a composition. Through mark-making, Stella built a series of shaped canvases with stretcher bars several inches thick. The shape of the canvas, the size of the canvas, and the extent to which the object would protrude from the wall were the only decisions the artist made, except perhaps for the renunciation of traditional artist paint. Stella used plain, ordinary black house paint and employed a brush of a certain width. Using the pre-given shape of the support as his guide, Stella painted an internal outline of the shape over and over onto and into the canvas, leaving a thin gap between the stripes, a glint of raw cloth, shimmering like a contour line. The 
artist's task ended when he ran out of space. The result is not a composition, but a series of black lines deduced from the already determined shape. The lines painted by Stella are completely without inflection. The stripes simply are, untextured and unmarked. The size of the canvas situates the series of deductive paintings uneasily between abstract expressionist field paintings and European easel art. Stella's paintings are formidable and imposing. They assert their presence, making a statement that is simple and strong. The presence, however, is not that of the artist, but that of the object itself. Indeed, Stella's work takes a step away from the spiritual all-over effect of abstract expressionism and becomes an object that is painted rather than a painting. The level of impersonality resulting from Stella's self-imposed discipline and self-effacement constitutes a sharp break with European modernism. While carrying Clement Greenberg's evolutionary theory of reducing painting to its essence, like Ad Reinhardt, Stella eliminated all color, thus wiping out any associations that come with color symbolism and ending any possibility of composing. Different colors unavoidably create not only a composition, but also inevitably relate to one another. Colors also cause depth and therefore an illusion of space due to the famous push-pull effect of advancing and receding colors used so effectively by Hans Hoffmann. Far more than Reinhardt, who used separate shades of black, Stella's flat industrial black paint produces an effect of artlessness and their inevitability of shape as content. Stella's black paintings of 1957 exude what critic Michael Fried called giveness and presence, which Fried stated was everything. By reducing modernist painting to an object whose presence was a given, Stella seemed to have brought the evolution of painting to a reductive cul-de-sac from which it could not escape. Stella's colleagues, such as Ellsworth Kelly and Helen Frankenthaler, carried abstract expressionism to a logical further development. Post-painterly abstraction, stained painting, and the group of artists who displayed the Tenth Street touch, borrowed from de Kooning, were able to carry on with color field and action painting and become part of a dominant hegemony of abstract painting. By 1960, when Clement Greenberg could confidently give his radio talk, and by 1961, when he published his article, Modernist Painting, he and his formalist concepts had initiated a generation of artists. Greenberg's theories had long been in the making. As an up-and-coming left-wing writer in the 1930s New York, Greenberg expressed his alarm over the growing importance of kitsch, or a form of lowered high art, that is recognized by the mainstream art audience as art. The 1930s was a bad time for avant-garde art, the innovative and forward-looking art favored by Greenberg. The expansion of the Soviet influence throughout Eastern Europe and the rise of fascism and Nazism in Western Europe after the 20s had placed political barriers among artists and countries, curtailing the international exchange of art, artists, and art ideas. The remaining locale of avant-garde art was Paris, once the capital of the art world now coasting on its past glories with surrealism well past its prime. In fact, the only remaining site where modern art from all over Europe could be exhibited was New York City at the Museum of Modern Art. Director Alfred Barr showed both Vasily Kandinsky and Piet Mondrian, not to mention Dada surrealism and Native American art. But most Americans were enamored of kitsch paintings by Thomas Hart Benton and Grant Wood. Even at the peak of abstract expressionism, Norman Rock 
Rockwell was famous and beloved and revered as an artist. Similar nationalistic art dominated in Germany, celebrating illustrations of time past, a repudiation not just of modernist art, but also of modern life. Kitsch was the ultimate comfort art for uncomfortable times and to Greenberg's despair when avant-garde and kitsch was written three years after Walter Benjamin wrote The Work of Art in an Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Greenberg had no hope that kitsch could have any redeeming value. The German critic Benjamin was prophetic in his hope that mechanical reproduction could participate in raising the consciousness of the deluded masses. One suspects that Benjamin would have approved of Michael Moore, while Greenberg would never allow that film could be art or that art could ever be political. Indeed, writing avant-garde and kitsch, Greenberg defined art and made a move into aesthetics by drawing a line firmly in the sand between the faux art of an Andrew Wythe and the true art of a Jackson Pollock. Capitalism bound the artist to the lure of compromise through kitsch with what Greenberg called an umbilical cord of gold. The avant-garde could be possible only under some form of socialism or a system that would not tempt the artist. Later interpretations would confuse kitsch with popular culture, rewriting the concept of lowering high art to appeal to a larger public into the idea of low art. However one defines kitsch, it is definitely not art, which is now defined as avant-garde. Greenberg's definition of the avant-garde is located less in the here and now, with Paris stagnating in the school of Paris and New York embracing Benton, and more in the uncertain future. With the World War clearly looming on the horizon, the 1939 essay had an abstract quality. But we know that Greenberg has been absorbing the art theories of the European emigre Hans Hoffmann, who has been teaching in New York since 1932. In many ways, the critic has been transcribing memories of a long-vanished European avant-garde, giving the essay a nostalgic, almost elegiac cast. By setting up kitsch as a sworn enemy of art, Greenberg created an exclusion that would have lasting effects, lacking advertising and popular culture, along with easy, accessible art outside the precincts of high art, significant art, difficult avant-garde art. At this point, Greenberg was like Donnie Diderot, a prophet in an artistic wilderness of attractive art seeking a savior. Diderot did not live long enough to meet Jacques-Louis David, but Greenberg actually found the artist who would restore the avant-garde, Jackson Pollock. On one hand, Greenberg could give the inarticulate artist the words to explain his methods, intentions, philosophy. And, on the other hand, the abstract expressionist movement manifested not just the avant-garde, but also the promised impetus for his theories on aesthetics. Although Abex was played out by 1961, the followers carried on the spirit and the letter of abstraction, upholding the tradition of modernist painting. Greenberg's ideas contained traces of Kant, art for art's sake, and Hegel, the dialectic of progress, grafted onto the concept of critique or an analytic of self-examination. Art purged itself of all extrinsic elements and retained only its intrinsic or literal and material elements, those elements that defined visual art. Freed of the burdens of illusionism and narration, painting was reduced to the quality that belonged to painting and only to painting, paint or pigment placed on a surface. The result of the redemptive reduction is a defining flatness 
surface, an emphasis on the surface, not on content. What makes Greenberg's description of the evolution of painting so different, so appealing, that his theory was, like Richard Hamilton's collage, so American. Using a Hegelian dialectical method of successive avant-garde movements, Greenberg traced modernist, that is, avant-garde painting from its supposed origins in Edouard Manet to its climax in America. The narrative is no more than Darwinian. It is triumphal. Mired in their own internecine nationalistic quarrels, the Europeans had lost their artistic way, just as the Americans stormed the sands at Anzio and the beaches of Normandy to save war-torn and occupied Europe from itself. So, too, were the Americans forced to step in and rescue the European avant-garde. In an astoundingly short time, abstraction became not just dominant, but also moral. Not just hegemonic, but also art law in America. Within ten years, art schools and colleges, now the primary sites of art production, taught, indeed, allowed, only abstract painting. Quickly, the avant-garde solidified into a system of rules defined by a list of forbiddance and exclusions, all in the name of redemptive purity. In New York, abstract art equaled progress and was redefined as American. Europeans woke up after World War II only to find that New York had stolen the idea of modern art, as the critic Serge Gilbeau put it. Somehow, the evolution of art from representation to non-objectivity, from figuration to abstraction, became yoked to the ascendancy of the American colonies over their mother countries. Most artists were too beguiled by the Oedipal Meta narrative to challenge it, or, as Frank Stella did, to deconstruct it. Tune in, click on, download. Thank you very much.